Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet a sane approach. We're not willing to sacrifice our health or our relationships to build our company. I'm excited about this week. I'm diving into this idea of a startup roundtable news discussion show. And, you know, I, I discussed a few topics with Derek Reimer a couple weeks ago. We're going a little deeper. This is the first, essentially, a roundtable where I invite two guests on and we talk through topics that are relevant to, to us in the microcomp, the startups to the rest of us, the self-funded, the indie-funded community. I hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, let's dive right in. So here we are at Startups for the Rest of Us inaugural startup roundtable discussion. We have some pretty interesting stories to discuss today. Before that, I have two interesting guests I'd like to introduce. Uh, first on my right, as no one can see, but we're in a camera, is Jordan Gall. He's host of the Bootstrapped Web Podcast, as well as founder and CEO of Carthook. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I'm excited for this uh, interesting new format. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. And above Jordan, in my view, is uh, Tracy Osborne, founder of Wedding Marketplace, Wedding Lovely, uh, that she shut down, what, about a year or two ago, and now the Tiny Seed Program Manager. How are you doing today, Tracy? Doing well. Happy to be back. Always exciting to join the, the podcast when I can. Yeah, that's the cool part is, is each of you have been on the show now several times, interviews, Q&A episodes, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully folks are familiar enough with kind of where you come from. And that's what I wanted to do with this show is get differing perspectives, you know, from different people coming from different directions. So I'm pretty stoked to, to talk through a few of these things. And as you listen to this episode, if you have thoughts on whether I should do it again in a couple months, what was interesting is I went back through like a month's worth of startup news and tried to pick out stuff that I think is interesting to, to our little space, this is the kind of the microconf startups for the rest of us community. And there just aren't that many stories that are really interesting to talk about. And, and I think, you know, we can get kind of get going on. So every month or two is, or even two or three months is, is how, where, you know, what I consider doing. And if, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, please contact us, questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our first story is about Basecamp launching Hey. It's at hey.com. They're essentially reinventing email. They are saying they're not going to allow uh, tracking pixels so people can track opens. I'm curious, Jordan, uh, you know, have you been following this? And do you feel like is Basecamp potentially taking it too far by blocking tracking pixels and, and DHA said they're going to shame people who send with tracking pixels. <laughs> so, so I have been following it. I think it's very interesting, right? We saw Superhuman come out of the gate on fire. and Everyone's talking about how they're going to be the biggest thing ever. And I think that excitement has waned a little bit around people are, you know, they're not that obsessed with it anymore. And then Basecamp taking on email is super interesting. But like most things with Basecamp, it's very difficult to separate the people and Basecamp and the controversy they create from the actual product. And I, I think they're real close to the edge of making themselves too much of the story right now. It's constant. Look, th these guys are very clever and it it's starting to feel a touch manipulative on what they're doing with Twitter to get to get attention. So I love their ideological approach. I love that they are unique in their opinions and they're, they take it strongly and they're not afraid to say it. And that's all awesome. But it's right. I, I think they almost need to kind of chill a little bit and then let the product speak for itself because there, this is a lot of talk and it's constant controversy. And it's a little bit grating. 
And I think the latest tweet that Jason put out, I forgot exactly what the context was, but it, he kind of felt that it went a little too far. I think he was making a comment on another company and people are starting to push back on it where they, they really have a huge halo effect to their products. But I think, I think they're right on the edge. And now, now I think it's time to let the product start to speak for itself. And I'm definitely interested. I want to see what they do because my email, th that landing page and the copy that they wrote resonated. My email is an unhappy place. And it didn't, it didn't used to be, but you it's been so long, you forgot that it used to be this cool thing that you communicated with people on. And it's no longer that. So th they definitely nailed that part of it for me. Yeah, and if you go to hey.com, you can read their manifesto where they say exactly that. I'm a, I mean, I'm a big fan of their products. They're, they're genius product builders. They're great content marketers. They wouldn't call themselves that, but they are exceptional. I mean, some of, the, some of the best there are. They have these massive audience. So, I, you know, it's been fascinating to, uh, to watch. What are your thoughts on this, Tracy? I find it funny that you you mentioned the Twitter the Twitter stuff. I feel like they're using Twitter effectively. <laughs> it's like how Twitter is meant to be used nowadays, which is annoying. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not on Twitter very often. But I can't, I feel like I can't hate on them for for doing this kind of launch because that's the marketing, right? It's that's the way that they're going to differentiate themselves from, say, superhuman or these other ones that are very email marketer focus where they're like superhumans like, oh, you're going to see the location, you're going to see the tracking pixel, or you're going to, you know, track the people that open and close it and we'll give you all those rates and data and whatnot. So they're the opposite end of the spectrum to superhuman. And I'm personally very excited for it because I think that we do need to have more privacy focused email clients because, you know, Gmail was kind of like the king for so long and the average user would use Gmail out of default. And we've had as email marketers this superpower that we were able to see when people open the open their emails. We were able to see those open rates, and we got. I want to say it's it's great for email marketers, but for the average person and and privacy and whatnot, I want to give people more choice. And I think that Basecamp is doing that. And it's funny to think about email in the superpower and all these all this data that we had, and how it's hard to like give up that data. But it's, you know, if you look back to just paper marketing, paper mail marketing, you didn't know how many people open up that, that envelope that you sent or how many people threw it right into the recycling. So I agree that it's going to hurt email marketers, but for the average user, it's, or at least the privacy focused technologist who needs those privacy features, I think it's something that's necessary. And Basecamp is simply using Twitter the way it's meant to be used. <laughs> Yeah, I, I signed up when I first heard about Hey.com. I am curious to use it. Uh, they have a list of 25 things that they are saying, you know, is wrong with email. I can't, I don't understand how they could possibly fix all those things. But that would tend to be, you know, it says problems with email. You screen your calls, you can't screen your email. Some emails are worth your immediate attention. Most are not. Files are attached to email rather than the other way around. You don't need to be told when to check your email. Like, I don't even know. And that's like five of the 25. I don't even know how you go about fixing that. And so that's, the, that. like you said, Jordan, that's when it's time to think about like getting into the product, you know, and, and watching it speak for itself. Uh, my take on it, I mean, I, I built Drip, right? I mean, that, so it's like, I feel like I like the idea and I'm I'm going to be a user of the product. I assume, it, you know, if it works and has unified inbox and has all the stuff I need. But I feel like railing against the open tracking is uh, taking it a little too far. I like open rates. I think having aggregated open rates of an email is something that is just fine for a marketer to have. I I think knowing when and where and how many times people open an email could be taking it a little too far, I would admit. 
But here's the thing. They can come out and say, we don't use any tracking. We don't use Google Analytics. We don't track open rates. And if you have a $100 million business throwing off tens of million a year in net profit with 50 employees, you can do that too. But if you're a bootstrap startup and you're trying to get to 10K or 50K or just trying to pay the bills, like you're in such a different position that I would, I would caution against taking that as advice or as something you should do as a business person, because I think it can be dangerous. It, it, you know, you've heard the mentality of like, hey, you build a great product and everyone, you know, that's what we did and, and everyone used it. I'm not saying Basecamp has said that, but there are people who come out and say, look, I just built a great product and never marketed it and magic. And everyone wants that to be the case. And it, it almost never is, you know, it's the exception. And I think that's potential danger with kind of, you know, coming out against that, that kind of stuff. I think we may be looking at it backwards because we are business people and we build technology products and we are looking at it from that point of view. And in reality, it matters a lot less what is right for a business. And it matters a lot more to give the choice to the actual consumer, to the user. I think that's really their perspective on it. And so I have an Amazon Alexa in my house. I have, I have three of them. So I have made the choice. I know what's happening and I have made the decision that in the balance between privacy and convenience, that's where I land on that product. And I think what they're, what they're looking at email as is taking it back into the user's control and saying, if I don't want tracking pixels, this is my inbox, not yours, marketer. And if I choose to degrade the experience of email with your company by blocking pixels, that's my choice. And what, what Basecamp is kind of yelling about is it's not okay that you don't have the choice. It's not okay that someone else decides what happens in your inbox because that, that's not normally what happens other places in your life. In your home, you get to decide if you want an Alexa or not. And people can make that choice once their right, journalists had to do that work <laughs> to uncover what, what was happening there. So I, I think if looked at that perspective and it's not a black and white tracking, no tracking, it's simply giving people the option that that's tough to argue with. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. Tracy, do you feel like, you know, this blocking of tracking pixels will become a trend? Do you think it should become a trend? I think privacy in general is becoming a trend. And it's I find it interesting you brought up Alexa because I th I feel like that was kind of the start when people started realizing that this really great convenience in their homes could potentially be used for other reasons. And I think that's I feel like those stories happened and then I'm involved in some other internet communities that are very privacy focused, very like almost to the extreme side of railing against all the things that are happening. Um, I personally had an Alexa and I ended up removing them from my house. That tells you a little bit about my own perspective. See? Yeah. yeah, I know it. I, I want one and I want to have all these privacy tools, but I've personally have decided that the convenience is, is not worth it for me. But I'm happy, I'm happy to see that it's becoming a trend. I'm happy to see that people, I think it's just, as the internet has grown, we got, I, I'm going to refer back to that word I used before, that we had these superpowers, right? Where we started adding all these superpowers and all this technology and all these things we could do. And now it's like, okay, cool. Now we've, we've reached this point where we need to allow people to draw back a little bit and decide if it's convenient for them. Like a pendulum swinging, you know, different directions. I think that's a good perspective. I was going to say, you can see the email market has been around a long time and it's mature, and now it's gotten to the point that it's so mature that this type of option makes sense, right? The, the in-home robot assistant isn't very mature, but you can see how 
if someone came out with an Alexa-like device that you had more control over the privacy, that would be attractive. So it's the same thing with the iPhone, right? People started freaking out where I, I just had a conversation in person about this topic and now I'm seeing ads on it. That's creepy. So it's it's all, right, the, the pendulum swung all the way toward maximum freedom. And then we all realized, oh, I guess we're the business model. And now it's coming back. And, and that's that's a healthy thing. For the record, I have five Alexas in my house, maybe six. I think it's hilarious uh, that um, if you go to thisishey.com, it's a business I presume has been around for a while, but it's an influencer marketplace, which is something I'm sure Basecamp would hate. And I, I mean, what are, what are the folks at This Is Hey thinking right now? Where it's like, they just took our name and they have the, the .com. So, so let's, let's swing into our second story. Lead Pages was acquired by Redbrick. Oh, and by the way, all of these, these stories we will link up in the show notes. So to clarify, because I actually had some people asking this, Lead Pages was sold to Redbrick, which is like a software, it's a holding company. It's almost, I would, I would almost phrase it as private equity. I don't think they said that in the news story, but you know, these private equity funds get together and then they buy software companies and, and, and manage them. Lead Pages was sold, Drip was not. And in fact, to say that Lead Pages acquired Drip is actually not technically accurate. Lead Pages and Drip are two products. Lead Pages, landing pages, and Drip is ES, NESP marketing automation. And they were owned by a single holding company called Avenue 81. And Avenue 81 acquired, you know, that's the, the company that raised funding and stuff. And it's kind of synonymous. It was synonymous with Lead Pages. Um, but then it is what acquired Drip. And so now, essentially, they, they've sold Lead Pages. And, you know, according a quote from the CEO of Drip, John Tedesco, who I, you know, I know personally, I actually worked for him before I left Drip a couple of years ago. He said that, you know, the acquisition is allowing us to now ruthlessly focus on pursuing our markets. We have a clear capital base in which to execute. We're flush with capital. So we're going to use it with discretion, use it intelligently. And, you know, obviously, obviously the play here was to, to put dry powder in the coffers, right? I mean, you, if you have an asset, you can sell it in lieu of, say, raising a round of funding. And it gives you not only the focus, I am conjecturing here. I will admit I have not worked at Drip for two years and I have very, very little, you know, inside information at this point. But if I were in, in Drip's shoes and I really see this marketing automation as a multi, many, many billion dollar opportunity and the landing page market is not. It's a very small market. So that just kind of gives folks background. I think, you know, the first question I'd have for Tracy is MailChimp has launched free landing pages in essence with your email account. I know a few other providers that are making them very free or very cheap. Does it seem to you like the landing page space is, is becoming commoditized? That's an excellent question. And I love having the more options, the better, right? I'm happy to hear that MailChimp is doing this. And MailChimp has a, has a really, really huge reach. Happy to hear that that they're making this stride because they also did, uh, I can't remember what happened with MailChimp, but they had a controversy, right? Where they raised the prices or they took away their free tier. Do you recall what happened about a few months ago, six months ago? I think it was if you unsubscribed, you're st you were still charged for those subscribers because they're moving a little more towards commerce, I think. Yeah, right. Okay. So that makes, yeah, because that came out and I think that kind of hurt a lot of people's usage of MailChimp. And so now they're have these free landing pages and you see that in ConvertKit as well. They have landing page, a whole landing page system and, and whatnot. It's <laughs> it's kind of a, a silly thing to say, but I'm like, I'm a fan. Um, would love, love to hear what you guys say. Yeah. What do you think about this, Jordan? Yeah, I think they're commoditized. I think they're lead gen. I mean, the business model is subscribers. So if landing pages help you get more subscribers, then the company whose pricing is based on the number of subscribers you have has a very vested interest in giving you the ability to add more subscribers. So 
I think it makes sense with the business model. It's also been commoditized. And just to clarify, the statement that you just quoted from the CEO, that's the CEO of Avenue 81, the company that's still... Correct. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure of that. So I love this corporate level strategy stuff. It's my, it's my favorite. <laughs> so a lot of people are going to look at it and say, oh, Lead Pages failed or it wasn't able to do what it wanted to. I think they are... This is brilliant. This is an asset that will only decrease in value moving forward. They're able to effectively raise money for their email marketing product, which is Drip, and they don't need to sell equity in it because they had this other asset. It's it's great. They basically just raised, I don't know how much they sold it for, but they, my, my assumption is they raised tens of millions of dollars in non-dilutive capital to go after a much bigger market in email marketing. And, and now it'll be interesting to see what they do and which playbook they run. Are they going to run up market and hire salespeople and go after the Marketo version of things? Or are they going to go with quantity and long tail and go after MailChimp? I'm going to assume they're going to go high end with an enterprise sales team and run that playbook. And now they have the money to do it. And they didn't need to sell any equity in it. It's great. Acquiring Drip was a very smart move. It worked out nicely for you. And it looks like it might work out really nicely for them also. Now that they kind of, especially if they've thought this through over the past few years, then it was brilliantly executed. Let's bring in a product. Let's make it the focus of the company. Let's sell off this asset. Then then we have our coffers ready. And now we can go after a much bigger market. That's that's the optimistic view of it. But that's, that's an exciting version uh, of things. So the CEO that gave that that quote, that's the new CEO, because the one that was that was around when Drip was acquired, that was a different person, right? Yeah, Clay Collins was around when I was when I was when we were acquired. And about a year after we were acquired, he stepped down and John Tedesco, who was the COO at the time, took over as CEO. Okay. I was gonna ask I was gonna ask if we look at John Tedesco's history and what playbook he has been able to run successfully in the past, that's going to tell us a lot about the future. But because it was an internal hire, it's it's less clear. He's been part of multiple startups and they, I would say they are in line with the enterprise approach that you're talking about, you know, very much um, sales folks and that type of stuff. Okay, okay. Yeah, because when I was looking at this announcement and the change in CEOs, it seems like they had a certain strategy when they had lead pages and they acquired Drip. And from what I was reading into it, it sounded like things would work a little more together, but the strategy changed. The new CEO came on and they're making this change in order because, because the strategy changed. So it seems like it all makes sense in terms of, of the direction of Avenue 81. And I'm curious, Tracy, you know, when you hear about a, a SaaS app like this being sold, so it's, you know, the original owner doesn't have it and it's, you know, now a holding company, would you be more or less likely to use a product that's been sold like that? Or does it matter to you? Yeah. Do you even care? Oh, interesting. I mean, but do you even hear about it too, right? Yeah. Well, we've heard about this now. Like if you were looking for landing pages, you know, there's obviously a bunch of competitors to lead pages. I'm curious if that would impact your decision to, to kind of sign up as a customer or not. I'm thinking of the average user, average user of, of how much they follow acquisition news. I'm assuming that lead pages are going to continue to grow uh, under the, the company that acquired it. Yeah. So it's... If I was thinking as an average user, I would suspect, A, they wouldn't know about it. B, if they did know about it, it sounds like instead of lead pages being sold, it sounds like lead pages, what is acquired, I mean, you could be spin that, spun in that way. Lead pages are acquired by someone who is going to spend more time and effort or more focus on it. And all, both of those things like a positive to me. 
So I kind of want to wrap this up with just a, a funny little story that it involves Best Buy and Geek Squad. And I don't know if you guys recall, but like Best Buy acquired Geek Squad, which is like the tech support people who run around in there in the cars to fix stuff at your home. And Geek Squad is now like the vast majority of their revenue and profit. Like they are one of the big drivers that has kept them in business when Circuit City and everybody else went under is, you know, that they have this thing. And so the CEO of Geek Squad, you know, the founder who sold it, when he does stands up in, in front and, you know, does talks now, he'll say things like, so when Geek Squad acquired Best Buy and everyone laughs, right? <laughs> well, that's, of course, that's the first thing I thought of with this is like, did Lead Pages acquire Drip, you know, five years or four years ago? Or, or, you know, did Drip acquire Lead Pages? It was, uh, it was kind of struck me as funny. Yeah. No, sounds like Avenue 81, you know, is, is, yep. is making the best of their situation. Indeed. And Lead Pages wasn't shut down. No, you know, they, they spun it out and it still continues to live. So I think hey, it sounds like a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Next story, I think something that a lot of folks have been thinking about is coronavirus. It's kind of, you know, made its first land here in the U.S. And yeah, I think it's on, it's on people's mind. It's certainly on the front page of the paper every day when I get up. And yes, I do still get a physical paper. My kids like to read the comics and frankly, so do I. But, you know, we're just hearing about it constantly. And I think it's, in my opinion, it's good that we all be aware of these things because it reminds us to wash our hands more and it reminds us to, to be aware of it, I think. Um, and it, I, you know, I talk to my kids about it. Hey, this is what it is. And, but I also, I always fall with, with all of these things. I remember the, the financial crisis of 2008. I remember H1N1, you know, in 2009. I remember that there was, a, was there the, the avian bird flu, which was like seven or eight years before that. I mean, there's, there's these crises that happen. And I always feel like people slash the news slash whatever, social media gets a little carried away with it. And and I think there's probably somewhere in the middle where we can be more sensible about it. Like, yeah, let's be prepared and let's be smart, but we should not be panicking. And I've heard a few people say, Jordan, you said it on, you know, your podcast episode that came out today. You know, you said you're less concerned about getting sick and you're more concerned about just the, the panic in the stock market and the panic of the emotions that people get, you know, around times like these. So I'm curious, Jordan, do you want to start with has you know, has coronavirus stuff impacted you or your business or, or anything so far? All right. So in, in the interest of letting action speak louder than words, I did go to Costco like 10 days ago and stock up, but I also went to the Blazers game last night with my daughter. So somewhere in between those two, I do not have any expertise whatsoever on infectious disease. So I will stay away from that side of things, but it is starting to affect business. The Shopify Unite conference has been canceled, at least the in-person portion of it. An event that we are just, we're starting to do sponsorships for events. The first one we sponsored just got canceled. And we're in e-commerce and supply chain issues are scary. And then really it's sentiment that's scary, that if people start to feel negative about the economy, and that will very directly impact Shopify and that long tail of merchants that's there. So... I'm looking at it from a point of view of, okay, what's the bad case scenario on the business? We're, we are fortunate that it's a software company. People from work, can work from home under that type of a condition if, if that's where it gets to. That's relatively easy. But what happens if 30% of our customer base goes out of business? What happens to access to capital? Should we set up a line of credit with our bank right now? Or should we talk to our existing investors and say, hey, let's, let's feel that out, what that option looks like? So I am not ignoring the downside. I'm exploring options to combat the downside version of things and then carrying on with business as usual. Yeah, which is a very measured approach. Be prepared, 
for what may happen. Be prepared for the worst, but hope slash plan for the best. You know, I mean, I think that's very much how I'm looking at it as well. Tracy, you have thoughts? I think I'm a very glass half full person. And it's, I, I do that deliberately to save my own mental state of mind. So I feel like society, hopefully at this, at the end of this, people are going to be washing their hands more. People are going to be, are thinking about when they go onto planes, if they're sick, even if it's not COVID-19, coronavirus, et cetera. I'm hoping that there's going to be lasting societal effects where people are thinking through things. Businesses prompts them to talk to their investors and make these plans and make up these backup plans and think about these problems. And, you know, at the end, maybe everyone is more prepared. Hopefully the apocalypse doesn't come. Maybe planes will be disinfected better. Maybe hotels will be disinfected better. Maybe conferences will have better screening when they talk about, like, are you coming to the conference if you're sick? Because the conference flu is a thing, you know, and conferences are like, oh, ho, ho, they laugh about the conference flu. But now we have this thing that's happening that's prompting conferences that aren't canceling, like Sasser, that's going to be happening next week, which I'm supposed to go to, <laughs> which is a little terrifying. Hey, I mean, I'm, I'm taking my kids. We're going to Gary Con. It's going to be 1,500, 2,000 people in two and a half weeks. I, and I, again, I, I will have hand sanitizer and I will tell the kids, you know, after the end of each one, like, don't put your hands in your mouth, all of the stuff, you know, the stuff. My kids are old enough to listen to that. But I'm like you, I, you know, life goes on at this point with, with some caution. I think caution is warranted. Yeah. I'm very happy. I had my flu shot already. I did that before any of all this. And now I'm like, Woo, good thing that's already done. You know, and Sasser is, is putting out all this information about how to stay healthy and they're going to have hand sanitizer stations and they're looking at this epidemic. And maybe this will happen in the future where conferences say, Hey, this epidemic is happening in this country and they're going to have to put policies in place. So what I'm hoping, glass half full, is that we're going to make it through this crisis like we have in our other health crises, but it's going to prompt society as a whole, businesses, conferences, and whatnot to put in these things in place to help us stay healthier. So that's that's what's keeping me hopeful, I guess. Yeah, optimistic. Yeah, you know, I was I was looking up numbers and H1N1, which was the, I think it was called the swine flu and the colloquially, um, like in 2009, 61 million people in the United States got it. And there were about 12,000 deaths we have a long way to go before we, you know, hit even levels like that. And I remember what the sentiment like was, you know, back then. I imagine some folks, you know, listening to this, maybe wondering, you know, about MicroConf, right? Because MicroConf Growth and Starter here are in about six weeks. And we are obviously, we're taking this very seriously, monitoring the situation daily. I have two physicians that are friends of mine that get, you know, hourly updates, and I'm in touch with them. And Xander is all over the, you know, there's, there's places where they officially talk about this in measured ways, like the CDC and parts of the US government and everything. And right, the CDC right now says the biggest problem that they're concerned about is the panic, not the actual virus. Most of the events, we're hearing about events being canceled. They're these massive events. They're 10,000, 100,000 person events. And lawyers. Yeah, right. The big companies worried about these very large events, but getting, yes. you know, getting 200 people together in a room is, is a different story. You know, it's, it's certainly not something that, not something that comes without some kind of risk, but there there are ways to mitigate this. Like you're, you're talking about, Tracy, like through education, it's like, hey, let's not do handshakes here. And, you know, let's use hand sanitizer. I mean, there's there's a bunch of, of ways to do that. So, you know, all systems go. And as we are in life, living it day to day and keeping it going, I think that's how, that's also how we feel about, about the event. So I'm looking forward to seeing folks here in Minneapolis in about six weeks. Our next story is about how a two-person startup already uses 28 other tools. This is from acrossapp.com. It's from their blog. And they're basically a tiny little two-person startup and they have 28 different subscriptions. I'm curious, you know, 10 years ago, 
we may have had one or two subscriptions and you paid for Photoshop as a big package and, you know, everything was kind of, you buy it once and then you get the, you know, the upgrades every couple of years. Now most of us have 20, 30, 40 subscriptions. Tracy, do you feel like this whole movement towards the, the SaaS, the subscription economy is, is a good thing? Or do you feel like it's cumbersome and we're potentially paying more now than we would have 10 years ago? I have to laugh because this is kind of Tiny Seed's thesis, right? (laughs) We're betting on these business-to-business SaaS apps. We love to see people building things for other businesses to use. Um, And it's definitely, that's, we're part of this trend that's happening right now where ever, there's lots of little apps that are doing lots of little things for you that you can pay for individually. Overall, I love it. I love it. I love anything that helps me save time. And ideally, you know, that subscription cost is going to save me as, as much time and hopefully money that it, it makes it totally worth it. I love that there's people out there that are building lots of little things to support themselves as they can create their startup and maybe get into Tiny Seed and all that. Huge fan of, of this system. I have no problem paying for subscriptions. I just want to make sure I don't forget which ones I'm paying for <laughs> because that's the problem, right? Well, the, and that's a bit, the thing, you, something you pointed out there is that there are so many tools that could not exist in a non-subscription economy. There's tiny little utilities you pay 10 bucks a month for. I, I just think it's changed the game and you can't look at it as, oh, I have too many subscriptions or I don't, or I wish there weren't subscriptions that we just paid one time because it's a completely different system now. And all these apps that we use and that we build wouldn't exist under a non-subscription economy. What are your thoughts, Jordan? I see an analogy to what happened with television. We don't pay less for television now. Between all the different streaming services, Netflix, YouTube, Hulu, Amazon, everything, I'm paying about the same, but the service is far better because I'm in control and I get to choose. And so I don't think it's any cheaper to pay for all these different pieces of software, but you do get a lot better service overall because you're getting very specific needs for your business addressed. So I I have the Google Doc open right now that we just went through a pruning exercise. You know, every two, three months, I asked my assistant, okay, give me all the recurring subscriptions that we have in the business. And then my CTO and I look at them. So I have in front of me, it is 61 rows long. (laughs) And maybe 10 or 15 of those are not traditional SaaS. So it's a good 40 to 50 services if you'll just excuse me for a minute, if I read through a few of them, they're all very specific and very necessary, right? Adobe Creative Cloud, AWS, Atlassian, Atlassian Status Page, Browser Stack, Calendly, Canva, ClickFunnels, Cloudflare, DigitalOcean, Docker, Drip, Dropbox, Figma, right? That's alphabetical order. I can just keep going down to Z. You know, it's a Frankenstein, but it's a beautiful one. It, it does ebb and flow in frustration depending on where the market is and where your business is. So at some point last year, we said, okay, that's enough of these different systems. Let's go to HubSpot. Let's go all in one. But in other areas, it doesn't make sense. So yeah, for for bootstrappers, for people building businesses, it's a great thing to be able to address one specific need, but you may be caught in that ebb and flow of a larger all in one, or you might need to go there. Yeah, I love it as long as the individual services are good. But the nice thing about the subscription version of things is if they're not good, you just leave them. Yeah, that's a big difference, right? It's not like you drop $300 on a piece of software and then you get two months in, you stop using it and you just you still paid the $300 versus the monthly. I've also found that the all-in-ones tend to be, it's like you said, it combines, everything works together. Well, I don't know if it's a little more expensive, but I, uh, the tools aren't as good 
you know, the, the individual pieces aren't as good, but you know, it is what it is. I'm obviously a big, big fan of this world. I think that, you know, having been around long enough to several of my early software products were not subscription. They were one-time download. And I remember the struggles of the first day of each month, I had $0 in revenue for that month. It wasn't, I have that baseline that I had last time. And that's the big difference that you forget if you've never run a non-subscription business is you're just grinding it out. And in fact, during the financial crisis of 2008 slash nine, I had one product. It was only, it was doing maybe 4,000 a month, but it was part of my, you know, income. It was a chunk of it. And sales dropped 80% overnight, one month to the next. And that's the kind of business that gets, you know, that's kind of, I mean, imagine if we were a, doing 4 million a month and had a bunch of employees and it dropped 80%. Like that's where you start laying people off. And that's, you know, it, it's just such a big difference that the subscriptions, you know, from our perspective as, as the business, I think they are a safety net. And I'm like, I'm like you too. I don't mind paying for subscriptions because I just, I like not having to install software and maintain it and do all that. That's the benefit we get from it. Now I, I want to add something where if this is a bit of a news show about things that are relevant right now, I, I, just saw last week a company launch called pipe.com and i jumped on the call a call with the founder and the, the reason for bringing it up is because the the downside of the subscription economy and being a, a developer and running a company based on subscriptions is that that lifetime value is stretched out and we're all familiar with gail simmons the slow sass ramp of death and the math behind paying to acquire and then collecting over a longer period of time so this company, Pipe.com, that just launched, what they do is they take MRR, they take your monthly payments, and they will they will pay you annually. So if I have a customer that pays us $500 a month, Pipe will look at that and say, okay, we understand your churn rate. We think this is a good bet. You can choose to sell us this customer, and we will give you the whole annual amount of money up front, and then you just continue collecting monthly from them. And so... The subscription economy is great in a lot of these ways, but one of the tricky parts is cash flow, especially for younger companies that aren't in the only annual, you must pay us an annual contract or you came to business with us, that that strength comes later. So it is tricky on cash flow, but there are additional financing options like pipe.com that are starting to address that. We've seen revenue-based finance. We've seen other things. Pipe.com is not debt and it's kind of like factoring, but for SaaS. And they charge you 15%, which is basically what you would charge people anyway, because you would give them two months free. That's kind of the default. If the customer cancels in six months, you they eat it. So they have a risk model? No, you pay, you pay back the, the remaining portion. Got it. Okay. Right. So it, there's literally an online portal and you can choose an individual customer. Like I know that customer, they've been around for two years. They're not going anywhere. I'll sell that to you because I'm very confident that they'll stick around. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Or, or you could sign an annual contract, which is something that we do. Our annual contracts are paid monthly. So we have annual contracts, but we don't, we don't have this big, large chunk. So they sign it. And then, so if you, that is even less risk. So this is an annual contract. They're paying monthly and I'll just choose, I'll click that and hit sell and I'll get the money for that entire thing up front minus the 15%. Yeah, I love the innovation, all the innovation that's happening in the in the financial models around SaaS because that, you're right, that is the biggest Achilles heel is the long, slow ramp of death. It's awesome. It's just the relationship with you and, and, your, and your billing software. And when you say sell the customer, is that they're acquiring the customer's information? 
for use? Yep, you are still, they're still in your Stripe account. You are collecting money. You're charging their card every month like like normal. But then they'll, they're able to see, oh, that customer paid in Stripe. Cool, we'll take that much amount from your bank account. Pretty interesting if you need money in the short term. Yeah, I mean, I know folks, you know, looking at raising around or, or you know, doing debt, kind of, you know, financing their SaaS revenue, but that's a... That's what I'm looking I'm looking at the same thing. So I, I looked at them and I'm like, oh, that's basically just taking your MRR and creating a line of revenue off of the MRR and then not actually putting any debt on the balance sheet and also not saying like equity. I was like, what what is what is the catch here? Because that is that's very attractive. Well, I think the catch is like, you know, when you think about risk. Yeah. Well, I think it's yeah, there is some risk, but I also think it's um you're basically spending future earnings. It's almost like when you put money on a credit card, now that's technically debt and this is not, but when you put money on a credit card, you basically are spending future earnings before you have them and that's what this is in essence. So there there is some danger. I think if you're prudent at managing cash and you know where that cash is going to go or you're in a spot where, you know, you do think you need some some dry powder in the coffers, I think it's a uh, interesting, certainly an interesting avenue to look at. Wrapping us up for today, I'm curious from each of you, what is your favorite podcast right now? And I mean right now because you know how, I mean, sometimes I have a favorite podcast for like two months and I binge them all and then I move on. So Tracy, you want to go first? Oh gosh, don't go with me first. I'm like, I'm like, I'm the worst at podcasts because I I have a hard time with podcasts because I I know some people are able to play something at 2x speed and then go through all their their backlog. And then for me, it's like, oh my gosh, I only have a certain amount of time and I can only do 1x. That said, and it's a dorky one, I'm still a big fan of Adventure Zone. It's by the My Brothers, My Brothers and Me. It's their D&D podcast. I mean, also My Brothers and Brother, My Brother, My Brother and Me is, is another one I listen to. And it's just because I need to turn my brain off from work. I listen to a lot of work where they podcast, starts with the rest of us, out of beta, a lot of other ones. And it's really nice to have something that's just a bunch of people just in a room together having fun. I would say that that would be my answer is the adventure zone and by extension, my brother, my brother and me. How about you, Jordan? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to reject your premise entirely and mention several of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not picking up my favorite. That's cool. <laughs> so I, I need to be kind of generic and, and I absolutely love the Joe Rogan podcast. It is, it's interesting. It is just really interesting. It challenges a lot of your thoughts and assumptions and is entertaining. It's funny. And there's so much of it. So you don't have to listen to every one and, and you're fully entertained. I also love the Dave Chang show. The chef Dave Chang from uh, Mamafuko has a great podcast that is about food, but also about creativity. He brings people on from his network uh, in the, the Bill Simmons world. Uh, so that's a very interesting one. I like Brian Koppelman, The Moment, and I absolutely love The Story Pirates. That podcast is so good. It's for kids. My kids listen to oh it. Oh my God. Yep. So look, I drive my four-year-old to, to school every day and it's about 20 minute ride. So that's what she wants to listen to. And we just laugh our butt off about it. It is these extremely talented actors that take stories that were written by kids and dramatize them and turn them into story and song and, and so on. And it's so brilliant and so entertaining and the kids all love it. And it's like, you don't mind listening to it. I don't know how many more times I listened to the Descendants 3 soundtrack before I bang my head up against the wall. Uh, so Story Pirates, big thumbs up. Yeah, me as well. They've written books that my kids have. We actually saw them live. They came to Minneapolis and performed at the Parkway Theater and we went and saw them. And they do a bunch of improv, right? I mean, they're really talented improv actors. And so, so you saw Lee and Nimini and yeah. Rachel? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, we totally did. Uh, and for me, I mean, the one, I, I listen to 40 podcasts, so I'm not going to run through them. But the one that I'm really digging right now is Reply All from Gimlet Media. And you know, it's a good, you have a good podcast when every time I look at the title, typically I'm like, ah, that sounds totally not interesting. I don't care about that. And I'll read the description and be like, I don't want, and when, by the time I'm three minutes in, I'm like, I care so much about this. I you know, and I, I'm sitting in my driveway waiting for, waiting for it to finish before I walk in the house type thing. So that's been a big one. And then I've actually been listening. There's an old D&D podcast that's been around for 10 years. It's not actual play. So I can't listen to people playing D&D. I can play it and I like it, but I cannot listen. So I can't do Adventure Zone. I tried and I just, I can't get into it. But there's one where they talk about, you know, the lore and the history and they talk about the books and they talk about rules and how to be a better DM and how, just all the stuff around it, the meta, which of course I'm always interested in the meta, right? Can't just start a company. You have to talk about starting companies, right? I can't just play guitar. I have to learn how they're made. Can't play d and I have to learn, you know, learn how it's, how they're created. But uh, Save or Die and Save for Half are the two that I, I'm really into. And one of them has been around 10 years, so. That's going to wrap us up for today. If folks want to catch up with you, Jordan, you are Jordan Gall on Twitter. And hey, do I pronounce your last name right? Is it Gall? It is Gall. Yes. Okay. It's not because I used to call you Jordan Gall, but that's not because that's how it's spelled, right? That's right. I, I heard you pronounce it different. So Jordan Gall on Twitter and Tracy is Tracy Makes on Twitter because her domain, her, her website is tracyosborne.com. Oh, if I, if I could get Tracy Osborne on Twitter, I would, but I did not. I had a, I don't know, some people might know my old Twitter username and that was a terrible idea. And Tracy makes us better than what it had before. And that's what I have. (laughs) It's all there. And then if you're interested in podcasts, check out Jordan on Bootstrapped Web. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rob. Yay. Thanks. I have to be honest, that was a, it was a fun show to prep for and record. I hope you enjoyed it. Certainly feel free to reach out. Uh, you can reach out privately, questions at startupswiththerestofus.com. If you have constructive feedback, if you want to give some accolades, a thumbs up, hit me up on Twitter at Rob Walling, and I look forward to hearing from you. If you have a question for a future show, you can leave a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions at startupswiththerestofus.com. Visit startupswiththerestofus.com for full show notes, transcripts of each episode, all the links that we mention in each show. And of course, if you're not subscribed, go into your podcatcher, search for startups. We should be in the top three or four. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.